On today's New York Public Library podcast, Rebecca Mead, author and staff writer for The New Yorker, sits down with Paul Holdengraber to explore her lifelong relationship with George Eliot's great novel, Middle March. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. Rebecca, in the middle, I hope, and beginning, what does that mean? Well, I'm In the middle of what? (laughs) And beginning what? I'm 47 years old. I'm giving my age as the first thing I say tonight. What What a shocking thing to do. So I hope that I'm in somewhere in the middle of my adult life. And yet, I hope that I'm also at the beginning of something and that I don't feel as if, you know, things are finished and nothing new can happen. And, and so, yeah, so, so this book too feels like a, uh, something that I reached in the middle of my life and couldn't have written at any earlier stage in my life. But it was also a, a beginning and an opening too. What, what do you actually mean when you, when you say that you couldn't imagine your life without Middlemarch? It's quite a statement. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I first read it when I was 17. Uh, I was studying for the entrance exams for Oxford University and sh- actually showing up in, a, in a, a teacher's classroom, rather like with a stack of books. I felt rather like I was going back to a tutorial carrying those things on just now. Uh, But I first read it then, and it spoke very strongly to me, uh, the story of a young, ardent, striving woman who is at the beginning of her life and wants to know, wants to figure out what to do with it, was something that I identified with completely. Uh, And then I have gone back to it and read it about every five years or so since, although not on a strict schedule, not with a plan. So 17, 22, 27... (laughs) <laughs> 32, 37, 42, so you're up for another reading now. Uh, more or um, less now, Which, which yeah. means a seventh reading. Yeah. Which I, I, means 5,000 pages. Yes, yes. Some, yes or it's an, nearly 6,000. It's an awful lot. And, and uh, uh, somebody told me yesterday that they'd counted. I hadn't, but it's about three, 330,000 words. Of course, being a writer from The New Yorker, I instantly start calculate who we get paid by the word. So I thought, you know, that's pretty great. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's a lot. 330,000 each, each, I mean, middle mark. Yes. So I think, two, two yeah. million by the time you have read it seven times. Yes. Yes. And, and more to come. I'm not done with it, I'm sure. So yeah. yeah. And it's not done with you. No, I, I hope not. I mean, I, 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 you know, people have asked me whether writing this book has led me to feel that I've sort of exorcised my Middlemarch thing and I don't any longer need to go back to it. And, and not at all, I feel, that, that I'm sort of itching to go back to it. I, I, when I pick it up to look up for a line or a quotation, I sort of, it's all I can do to stop myself getting back in and reading it again. But you didn't quite answer my question. Mm, no. Yeah. What was it again? 
what would how would I have... imagine your life without middle yeah. knowledge? Well, if you build a long relationship with a person, with a book, that starts to be part of the fabric of your imagination. It starts to be a lens through which you see the world. And because this book was the one that spoke to me when I was young and continued to speak to me, uh, it has become the lens through which I understand myself, uh, people around me, and, and uh, everything that goes on. It's not, you know, it's, not, it's not that I spend my whole time thinking, oh, goodness, that's just like Casabon. But I, I do... I do it, it, resonates for me. It, it still, it comes back to me. It could have been another book, but I would have been another person choosing another book. And, uh, and I feel that, you know... But, but let, let's take for a, a moment the fact that maybe it couldn't be another book. Well, for me, it couldn't be another book. Okay. I mean, I feel, you know, in some sense, I chose Middlemarch when I was 17. I, I loved the idea of being the kind of person that could summit this majestic peak of English literature, but, but, I, but, I, but I feel like Middlemarch chose me. Um, it, it, it spoke to me, and uh, as nothing else I had read had or ever has since. You, you write early on in the book that early, your early experiences of reading it, of reading it perhaps as a a young reader, a naive reader, perhaps even a bad reader, if that is correct. You say that a book that once seemed to be all about the hopes and desires of youth now seemed to offer a melancholy dissection of the resignations that attend middle age, the paths untrodden and the choices unmade. That's, yeah, that's how I felt about it. That's how I felt about Middlemarch when I was first conceiving of writing this book, which was when I was in my early 40s, really. And which is a time of life, for me, certainly, perhaps for all of us, where you start to think about the doors closing behind you, the things that you haven't done that you're never going to do, you know, the children you're not going to have, the men or women you're not going to marry, and the, you know... The, the, the things it's too late for. Um, and when I read it in that frame of mind at that time of life, it seemed to be all about the failures and compromises and resignations that can come in the middle of life when you realize that you're not going to do the things you might have hoped to do or you still, you don't see the endless possibilities of the person that you might become ahead of you. Yet there are the two words that follow, and beginning. Yes, yes, because writing this book was, for me, although I didn't set out to do it in a kind of, you know, solving this problem way exactly, but it, it was a very joyful experience, and it did lead me out of this uh, sort of 
mild depressive state that I was in uh, when I began it. And, and you yeah, know, I mean, you seem incredibly happy. At, yeah. You know, at, I mean, I mean, surprisingly. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, it's it's as if this book has brought out, brought forward, brought forth a new Rebecca. I mean, I would love to find a book like that. To write? No, yeah. even to read. I mean, maybe to write. I, I mean, I, it, it, yeah, it, I, is, I, that, is that true? Yes, I completely... Look at you. I, mean, I know. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean... I completely loved writing this book. People, you know, writers, you, you hear writers talking about how hard writing is and, you know, writers who advise, you know, students who are thinking about becoming writers, you know, if you can think of anything to do but be a writer, do it because it's so hard. And, and I, I, you know, it, it's not that writing every word of this was easy, um, but it was a joy. It was a joy and, uh, I mean, it was a privilege to spend time in this world of books and in George Eliot's mind, but it was a joy to sit down and let my consciousness go back to my own youth and my own beginnings and think about what I had done with my life thus far and what I, else I might do with it. And it was a pleasure. And Rebecca, I want, I mean, I want to go back. I want to go back to, to the young reader, 17, year, 17 years old, who is beginning in life, is beginning in a provincial town in uh, England, on her way to Oxford. In some way, Middlemarch was an entrance for you into Oxford. It helped you enter into a world which... Um, was new to you yeah. and the book in a way also offered you the possibility of strong ambition looking over you you have I asked you to bring here <laughs> an old copy because you speak about it with some form of tactile inebriation of this <laughs> early early volume and I can see that yeah. you know yeah, it's yeah. barely and the cover describe the cover for a moment well the cover shows a picture shows a picture that's in the collection of the Tate Gallery and it is a young woman in a long gown climbing over a wooden stile uh, up a hill into a wooded copse by the looks of things. And this picture looks exactly like a, 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 a place. Like, it's not just suggestive of a place. It looks exactly like a place that is minutes from the house, my parents' home, the house in which I grew up. And so when I was reading this book, this is, you know, I had a short address, but this is who I was. <laughs> and... Uh, with, with a little backpack on my back. And, and it was, the f that first time I read it, it was, as you say, my entry to Oxford and everything that would follow from that. But I didn't know it was my of entry course. from Oxford. I was trying desperately to get to Oxford or to get 
the hell out of where I was. I was about because, to say. Yeah, I, I mean, I and to jump over the hedge. Yes, I wanted to not just jump over the hedge, but run up the hill and keep going for about 300 miles and, and get to London or a city or anywhere that that wasn't the provincial town in which I grew up. So it felt, you know, I was passionate to to get out and get on and live and and experience things that I had no idea really what I wanted to experience. But, but, but you, felt, you felt inclinations and this instigations and kind of tingles of what that might mean. Yeah. And I think what it, at least in the way you describe it in the book, it's, it was intellectual life. It was, yeah. um, though you never use the word, I, I, I see in it a desire for cosmopolitanism. A Absolutely, a yeah, desire yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to get away not only from provincial life in England, but from the provinces of the mind, the smallness, the pettiness, yeah, which uh, is a subtitle also of Middlemarch. Yes, 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 the study of provincial life. And yes, and it is a study of provincial minds and provincial hearts. Um, yeah, I wanted, I mean, the town I grew up in is a seaside town, very pretty. Uh, but it had, I think, one bookshop that wasn't very good and now probably has none. And uh, it had, didn't even have, you know, it had a, a, a library um, that we used, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of, it wasn't this. <laughs> uh, it was a long way from being this. And, um, and, it, and, you know, there weren't, there wasn't, it wasn't a college town. There were no students. There was nobody who wanted to, everybody who wanted to do anything with their lives got out as soon as they could. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say, and if anybody here is from my hometown, and, you know, I'm sorry, but um, it was it, it just everybody, everyone aspired to get out, and, and I, I was very eager not to be. And, and yet you had there. this extraordinary tutor who taught you this book. Yeah, I, I went to, I went to uh, the home of a, a teacher who helped us, helped a group of us read in a kind of quasi-Oxford uh, tutorial style. Um, and we did read it. And I remember very, very clearly going for my interview at Oxford, where I, um, I was interviewed by a very forbidding Scotsman who had a uh, uh, these very low-slung armchairs, and you could either sit really perched on the edge like this, or you could sort of sink right into the depths, what and neither was very you, comfortable. What did you choose? I think I, I, think I perched. I, I'm more of a percher than a sinker. Um, I think I perched, and I talked with... I, remember, I don't remember what I said, but I remember talking with passionate enthusiasm about Middlemarch and how, uh, you know, I was probably talking about, you know, web imagery or something appropriate to being an 18-year-old student. But I, I, I think that middle march got me into Oxford. And you know, the, being that student speaking with enthusiasm about middle march is in, in fact maybe the, the journey that this book has offered you again, to become again that person who is filled with enthusiasm for their subject. You know, it reminds me of a, the quotation of Emerson who said that nothing great can ever be achieved without enthusiasm. Right. But going back to, going back to your, your early, early years, there's a line you quote uh, which isn't from Middlemarch but from the mill on the floss where, which says, we could never have loved the earth so well if we had no childhood in it. 
think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it re- she's that, pretty good. That she's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's good for someone who one has trouble, as you say in the book yourself, uh, speaking about Alexander Maine, uh, someone who uh, one should be careful not to just quote. quote quotation yeah. Of, yeah. of George Eliot can be complicated. But here, my goodness, I'll read it again. Yeah. We could never have loved the earth so well if we had had no childhood in it. Yes, yes. And so she's, she's talking, I mean, this whole passage in the middle on the floss, these you know, two or three pages, this so beautiful, uh, this evocation of the landscape and the, the trees and the earth uh, in which one grows up as a child and the way that those things, she says, and I'll paraphrase because I, I can't do it off the top of my head, but she says, you know, there's nothing special about this flower except that it's the flower it, that we, we knew when we were so it's growing my, up. So it's mine. It's, it's, it's mine. Yeah, and, it's and, and that's, uh, that's what nostalgia is about. It isn't, one isn't nostalgic necessarily for something beautiful, but one is nostalgic for something that was our own. Yes. It's yes. a pain to return to the very thing you left behind. Yes, yes. And, and so when I was writing my book and, and, and reading these works of hers, um, I was, you know, in order to write the book, I went back to England, you know, a number of times and did research and reporting and so on. But I also spent, you know, a good amount of time, you know, revisiting England in my imagination and through the words also of her, of her books. She's not thought of as being a great sort of describer of things necessarily, but there are these you know, passages about the kind of modest beauty of England that I, that speak very, very clearly to me that I probably wouldn't appreciate nearly as much had I not left the modest, modest beauties of England for the grandiose beauties of New York. I was wondering, I was wondering yeah. how you would finish that <laughs> sentence. So was I. Um, but but, it, but you, I, I feel you, you did fairly well. Um, I've insulted my yeah, hometown. No, I can't I, insult I my... <laughs> no, but I don't... Uh, but are you insulting your hometown? No, no, no. Uh, no, I mean, no. the modest beauties. They are plentiful where I'm from, yes. And I, when I, um, but it's a humility also of the, the place in well, some way. Well, yes. And it's a kind... You know, England... Uh, you know, as as are the English, are uh, you know, understatement is something that we do, and both in our landscapes and in our demeanours. So, <laughs> you you have a passage uh, towards the end of the book that I very much like, which I'd like to to quote from. You say Eliot showed me that the remembrance of a childhood landscape is not mere nostalgia for what is lost and beyond my reach. It does not consist of longing to be back there in the present or of longing to be a child once more or of wishing the world would not change. Rather, it is an opportunity to be in touch again with the intensity. That word, I think, is very well chosen, with the intensity and imagination of beginnings. It is a discovery later in life of what remains with me. That I, it's, yes, I, I agree. With the, so in, in a way, what, what 
you're trying to do in My Life in Middlemarch is recapture the intensity. Yes, I don't know if I was trying to do it. Uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I, I don't know if one does sit down and say, I, I'm going to try to recapture the intensity of youth. I, I don't, but, but it was that experience, definitely. And, uh, you know, that's part of when I describe the joy of writing. It was having this very intense remembrance of where I was from and of my family and uh, of my world that, that, that I had left, that you know, when, I returned when, to. When, when, I, when I read that word intensity, it brought, uh, as you know, I, I, I do like quotations quite a lot. And there, there is one from Castiglione, uh, from the book of the courtier, written in the 17th century, um, 16th century, where he says, I have many times asked myself, not without wonder, the source of a certain error, which since it is committed by all the old without exception, can be believed to be proper and natural to man, namely that they nearly always praise the past and blame the present, revile our actions and behavior and everything which themselves did not do when they were young, and affirm, too, that every good custom and way of life, every virtue, and in short, all things imaginable, are always going from bad to worse. <laughs> and then he says, for myself, I think that the reason for this faulty judgment in the old is that the passing years rob them of many of the favorable conditions of life, among other things, depriving the blood of a great part of its vitality. And in consequence, the physical constitution changes and the organs through which the soul exercises its power grow feeble. Thus, in old age, the gay flowers of contentment fall from our hearts, just as the autumn, in autumn the leaves fall from the trees. And in the place of a bright and, and clear thoughts, the soul is possessed by dark and confused melancholy, attended by endless distress. <laughs> Thus, the mind as well as the body grows weak. It remains only a faint impression of past pleasures and only the images of those precious hours of use when so long as they last, heaven and earth and the whole of creation seem to be rejoicing and smiling as we look and a gay springtime of happiness seems to flower in our thoughts as in a delightful and lovely garden. And when reading this, I, I thought to myself, this is what Rebecca is after. Um, <laughs> af in, in some way, after, um, I, I, or maybe not after, but against the hardening of the blood, uh, the, the, mm. the, the blood flowing less intensely. Yes. I know it's hard yes, for you. No, I no. know it's hard for you to react to no, this. No, but no, I'm no, it's not. What I react to is that he's talking about old age versus youth. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in our middle years right here, Paul. And, uh, you know, so maybe we have the... I know, I know. We don't um, have... I mean, we're heading that way, uh, but, we, but maybe we don't... Maybe the blood hasn't stilled or frozen or congealed or anything yet completely. I mean, the... the, the, the this, this middleness of 
Middle, Middle March. March. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's about, you know, it's about a, a middling average town in the middle of England and people are middle, you know, they're sort of, you know, ordinary people. Um, but, I, but I thought a lot about middle age while I was writing this. I was, I think, sort of, I began this just after the point where, you know, you, you could sort of say to yourself, well, I'm, you could say to people, well, I'm middle-aged, and they'd say, oh, no, 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 you're not. And, you know, it's been a long time since, since anybody's contested my, um, my <laughs> assertion that I'm middle-aged. But I, you know, George Eliot didn't start writing fiction until she was 38, which is considerably younger than me, but... Um, she wrote Middlemarch when she was 51, 52, around that time. And uh, it is this book that's written from the perspective of middle age about the, the follies and trials of youth. And she was somebody who, if one were feeling, if one were prone to feel depressed about you know, the coming of middle age, she's such a great uh, exemplar. And she, and she wrote so sort of humorously and beautifully about... There's a, there's a line where she says, uh, she's writing to a friend, she's in her 20s, she's 25 or something, and she says, we're happier now than we were when we were seven, and we will be happier at 40 than we are now. And she says, and then she sort of subverts it by saying, you know, this may or, this may, or may not be true, but this is, a, this is a, a doctrine in which I try to believe. And I love this idea and this that... this gave you hope. That she, yeah, that she... That, 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 I mean, I'm, not, I'm never going to see 40 again either, but, um, but I... I the, the idea that, um, you know, the middle years of life are not uh, just a loss of youth, but, a, you know, discovery and, and their own excitement. Yeah. So, I, you know, I may feel that way. I, I hope I get old enough to feel that way. Um, but I... I Certainly don't now, no. <laughs> um, what interests me also is that this book, in a way, is a, a catalyst. It's the prism through which you can see and understand life. And in some way, you've put such pressure on the book. It can take it. <laughs> it can take it. <laughs> but yes, go on. <laughs> but it, pressure to answer so many questions. Well, Is that right? I mean, in some way, the, the book nearly serves as a guide. I, I don't... I, I mean, I don't think of Middlemarch as a guide in the sense that, you know, if you read it it will tell you what to do with your life. I do think that if you read it, it will tell you what you've done and what you, maybe what you've done wrong with your life um, more clearly. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not... I mean, there are... Uh, you know, George Eliot has a moral compass. It's very clear. And there is a moral uh, theme to Middlemarch. And, I mean, put briefly, it's the idea of enhancing empathy and yeah, she understanding says, if art does not enlarge men's sympathies it does nothing morally right yes which and is so an, she wanted a, a, to so nearly a melioristic yeah. view yeah and she wanted to enlarge sympathies and she wants she shows the character's sympathies being enlarged mostly and she wants to enlarge the sympathies of her readers by 
making us sympathize with different characters. But it's not a, I mean, poor Alexander Main, who I write about in the book, who was this Scot, this young Scot who collected quotations from George Eliot and compiled them in a book. Um, the witty saying. The wise, witty, and tender sayings from the works of George Eliot. It's, it, I mean, it was on the backlist. It was, you know, published for years, which is, you know, a, a sign of some success, I suppose. Uh, but it was, but it's dead. It's, it's completely deadly. I mean, there's nothing worse you can do to George Eliot than, you know, extract nuggets of wisdom and then put them in a book. The book has to be, you know, 800 pages long for you to have this experience for you to go through the experience of empathy and to come out at the end of it, having you know, gone through that movement and learned something. And yet, you know, what is interesting about Alexander Main is you are, you're not very tender with him at first um, in, in profiling Alexander Main. I recognize some of your other profiles, which can be very hard hitting. Um, we'll get to that in a moment, but yet, at the end of being in his company, and you spend a fair amount of time with him, research, researching him, I think, at, in Edinburgh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, you begin to appreciate the man quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, he was, he was this young man who wrote to George Eliot when uh, he was in his mid-30-ish, I think, and wrote a fan letter. And... Uh, she wrote back, and then he wrote another one, and another one, and, and he inundated her with these increasingly long letters. And, he's, and he spoke to something, that you know, he, he, he appealed to her. She, he, he read her, her books in a way that she wanted them to be read, that he felt morally improved by them. Um, and then he, compiled, he went on to compile this, this work, and, and his, the biographers of George Eliot have been uniformly uh, sneering about Alexander Main because, because it was a misbegotten project. Um, but I did go, I, I, I wasn't able to find his letters, you know, reprinted anywhere and no, none of the biographers had ever, you know, done very much with them. So I went to Scotland to read them all and spent two days sitting, two very long days sitting in the, in the National Library in Scotland and reading through these letters. And, and on the one hand, he's sort of creepy and fawning and, um, uh, and, and awful. Uh, but, but he's also, he's very sympathetic. You know, he, he, I mean, she, she, she tries to draw him out and he withdraws and says he doesn't want to give himself away. And I found him, you know, intriguing and, uh, and, and I, felt, I felt my compassion for him growing, even as I recognized in his project some of my own, you know, uh, my own love for George Eliot and my desire to connect with her too. You know, because there, there is this line that, that we read earlier about what, what literature should do and what art should do if art does not enlarge men's sympathies, it does nothing morally, which is a, is a complicated thought, the, the thought that, that literature in particular should do anything at all. Should do anything morally, certainly. Yeah, should do yeah. anything morally yeah. and should in any... I mean, is this why we read? I mean, and, and Harold Bloom has interesting things to say about, about Middlemarch. Uh, he, he believes that this, one, this book may be one of the only books that can manage in some way to have a melioristic uh, ability to make us better 
I mean, do, do, do you read for that reason? I mean, in some way, um, reading to identify is perhaps reading, as Nabokov would say, very poorly. It is, yes. I don't, and I don't think, you know, I don't think that a book can make you a better person. <laughs> But I, although if a book could do that, Middlemarch would be that book. Um, as, as Harold Bloom says. But, um, but, but I do think that, I mean, I don't read to, f to make myself better. I read to feel better. I mean, I, I feel better when I am having the experience that a great book gives me, which is this experience of immersion and empathy and getting out of myself and having to think about the lives of others. And I think that is what, that's, that's, what I take from what George Eliot said about the moral work that she wanted her so novels to the, do. The, the, the word sympathy, the word empathy, in, in, in your view, which came to her from, from a deep appreciation and study and translation of the German romantics, um, did it, what did it mean? I mean, did it mean putting yourself in somebody else's uncomfortable shoes? For her or yeah, for us? For her. For her. Um, yeah, I think it meant it meant understanding that you that you have your center and uh, you know you see the world revolving around you, but that you know everything looks just slightly different from where you're sitting, and the 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 the, the lay of the land is slightly different, even this distance apart, and that our task is to understand one another better. You, I mean, you have this line, which I, I so like, where you say this notion that we each have our center of gravity must come to discover that others weigh the world differently than we do, is one that is constantly repeated in the book. The necessity of growing out of such self-centeredness is the theme of Middlemarch. It is, it is. I mean, and hopefully that's the theme of growing up too. I mean, hopefully that's... To become less, less concerned with our own person. Well, I think as a, as a young person, one is, you know, it's very easy to be wrapped up in one's own problems and one's own concerns. And, and hopefully, as we grow older, with the help of literature, or not, but I think literature can help in this way, um, uh, we, we, we do... We do understand that, that, that the world looks differently to you than it does to me. You, um, you believe very strongly that the choice you made of Middlemarch in some way gives us a key to understanding who you are. Yes, yes. And you are very intrigued when you find out and ask in the book what it is other people love most. In your case, it's Middlemarch, and in some way, it's unjustifiable. You know, it, it's like, it's a, I mean, it's there's a kind of irrationality to it, like any love. And like I mean, love. There are reasons, but there's also an The heart has of, its reasons yeah. that reason doesn't know. You yeah. know, that line of, of Pascal. I mean, that, that is perfect. I mean, so your husband, for instance, uh, George, your George, loves um, 
remembrance of things past, la recherche du temps perdu. Yeah, yeah. What does that difference mean? Because Between in, him and me? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and because in so many ways, Rebecca, this book is, is a, a, it's really, we'll get to other themes, but one theme is this is a book, very much a love letter to your George. Yeah. And, and Middlemarch is so different from A la Recherche du Temps Perdu. One is... <laughs> One is an extraordinary ability in one person to hold such a world and construct it. And the other is the ability to hold such a world and remember it. Right, yes. And, and what it means for, for George and me is that one day I will finish reading Proust. Um, and God knows I've... I have tried, and I am trying. Um, when I am a better wife, I will finish reading it. We talked about Middlemarch on, I think, the second time we went out. Uh, and I, I, probably I already knew I was going to marry him by then. But we did. We, d we, d we but talk the, but, about... But this, yeah. this actually matters, right? <laughs> It, it, that, that he loves that he, and yeah. understands the book? Yes, yes, yes. Because I, I remember when, when, um, when I was about to marry my wife, um, she asked me the fundamental question, which was if I liked a hundred years of solitude. <laughs> and? And thankfully I said yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, you but, know... But uh, here we're getting to something which seems jocular yeah, and yeah, yeah. funny. Like you give it as a test, you know, will I date you if you... No, if you haven't read this book, you don't stand a chance. No, not... Uh, no. I have gone out with men who have not read Middlemarch. Yeah. I have tried to and get I, them to read it. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, you say this in gist now, but in the book you describe very carefully a man who you left who you had given Middlemarch to and who never opened it up, but, <laughs> right? And, but read, yeah. it, read it afterwards, um, after you that, parted. That, one, that was in the New Yorker. I don't think it made it to the book. Okay. But, um, he was very nice about that piece, by the way. Um, but no, no, um, but it does matter. I mean, we, you know, not because, uh, I mean, it sounds so precious, doesn't it? We sit around and we talk about Middlemarch and most of the time that's not what marriage is. But sometimes what marriage is, is sitting around talking about what matters and if you're the kind of person that loves literature. No, but, uh, talking about Middlemarch yeah, is but, that. But I'm, I'm actually it, 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 talking about Middlemarch or talking about literature matters greatly, but what matters is um, I mean, you love people with whom you share adjectives. Mm -hmm. Say more. Yeah. In, 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 in some way, I will. I promise you. In, 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 I won't leave you there with just I that. Think you no, no, no. But, but it's a communal language, um, particularly over years. Um, it's a language that gets refined and where you actually know more and more what, what words mean for each other. 
the, the, the whole notion of, of being with someone who would be, who wouldn't share this with you, would make it yeah. close to impossible. Well, we see that in Middlemarch, don't we? Yeah. We see, you know... Say something about that, well, if you would. Well, Lydgate, Tertius Lydgate, I mean, their difference, they, they come apart not, about, not over literature, but, you know, Tertius Lydgate is the character in the book who represents intellectual passion and intellectual ambition. And he marries Rosamund Vincy, who is interested in not much more than having the right, you know, plate on the table and the right curtains and the windows and so on. And it's this fatal, uh, this fatal, fatal mismatch. Um, I mean, there's that wonderful line um, about which I might be able to find about uh, you know, marriage. May I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, marriage, which has been the born of so many narratives, is still a great beginning, as it was to Adam and Eve, who kept their honeymoon in Eden, but had their first little one among the thorns and thistles of the wilderness. It is still the beginning of the home epic, the gradual conquest or irremediable loss of that complete union which makes the advancing years a climax and age the harvest of sweet memories in common. Which is, you know, telling us that a, um, a wedding is, is not the... is a great beginning. It's not the end of anything. Uh, you know, novels often end, ended with weddings in the 19th century. Um, but that's when the story starts. And it can be a happy story or a tragically divided story, and we have both of them here. Um, say a little bit more, if you would, about this notion of home epic. It's such an... I yeah. mean, you develop yeah. it in the book, yeah. it's and a, it's such an interesting, intriguing... The phrase is the, so... The phrase. It's, it's this juxtaposition of right. two things that we do not think of as having anything to do with one another. Uh, I mean, I think of it as... You know, marriage is both the grandest thing that we could aspire to do. I mean, it's like marriage at its... The, 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 the effort and, the, and the, the project of marriage is like a cathedral, you know, but, but in the mundane day-to-day, -day, it's, you know, the little people milling around in the cathedral. It's just, it's, it's just ordinary and small. But what could be grander? What could be more ambitious? What could be more terrifying than, than marrying somebody and saying, this is who I'm going to spend my life with? And then creating a home and, uh, and, and, and forming. And, and so having this journey of the home epic, which is, which is a grand journey that all of us or many of us or most of us participate in without being heroes in any way. You, you were mentioning before Lydgate, and um, there is a passage which I, I love. The way, and you, you quote it as well in, in uh, My Life in Middlemarch, of the birth of a passion. Yeah. 
Because, yeah. you know, the, I love passion. We have words for it all the time. We're yeah. inhabited by a certain form of romanticism that follows us around. But he, this somehow um, felt very, very powerful. He was one of the rarer, rarer lads who early get a decided bent and make up their minds that there's something particular in life which they would like to do for its own sake and not because their fathers did. Most of us who turn to any subject we love remember some morning or evening hour when we got on a high stool to reach down an untried volume or sat with parted lips listening to a new talker or, for very lack of books, began to listening to the voices within as a first traceable beginning of our love. Something of that sort happened to Lydgate. Yes, and I think something of that sort happened to me and, and happened to you and, and brought us out of our little homes into, you know, into this wider sphere that we, that we sought to inhabit. But yes, that, 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 that passion for, for ideas and for learning and for wanting to, you know, just the joy of, the, the love of, of something other than love. Um, and then, of course, over the page, it's fatally compromised. And there's that other... The t problem is that you can start just reading this stuff out. It's just so good. But um, For in the multitude of middle-aged men who go about their vocations in a daily course of determined for them much the same way as the tie of their cravats, there's always a good number who once meant to shape their own deeds and alter the world a little. The story of their coming to be shapen after the average and fit to be packed by the gross is hardly ever told, even in their consciousnesses. You know, and this, this failure to, to reach the, the, uh, the goals to which he had aspired to is, is, is so t uh, chillingly told in these pages. But yes, I love, I love Lydgate climbing up the stairs and climbing up the staircase and opening a book on anatomy. And, see, and of course, he opens to the page of Anatomy of the Heart. Little symbolism there for those studying for their Oxford entrance exam. <laughs> Nabokov has a, a, in his lectures on literature, has, has this to say, which I think is quite fitting for you, which he says, uh, where he says, incidentally, I use the word reader very loosely. Curiously enough, one cannot read a book. One can only reread it. A good reader, a major reader, an active and creative reader is a re-reader. I'm curious, well, I, I, I imagine this fits very well with the way you experience Middlemarch because all you can do is set yourself the goal to read it every five years. <laughs> What I'm curious of is you were saying earlier on in our conversation that you're, you can't wait for the next time yeah. you read it. You see, it's not a goal. It's not a self-improvement project. I will read this book every five years. And it so no, happens. It calls to me. It calls to me. It leaps off the shelf into my hands. It's, it, it feels like it is time to read it again. And it's roughly every five years. And so why? Um, 
I mean, well, why, why, Rebecca? Why do you feel <laughs> that? Um, because you know, earlier on, you were showing me some markings in this book. This one. In this, in this, this book, one. and they're very faint yellow. Yeah, the faint faded fluorescent pen the, of things that I marked when I was 18 or maybe in college. I don't know, but they're very hard to they're see. They're hard to see. Yeah, yeah but here I see we are. them. Yes. yes. Yeah, no. And what does this bring to mind, seeing those markings? Well, I, I mean, I was underlining things that, that seemed significant, although I don't know that I was sure what their significance was going to be. I mean, they were, they were you know, I underlined a lot of things about, a lot of sort of tragic things about fail the failures of marriage, uh, which may explain why I didn't get married until I was 37 or something incredibly belated like that. Um, But, you know, the, the, I don't think there's anything in the least bit peculiar about rereading Middlemarch every five years or so. You see, I think that I, that's... I, I don't either, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't either, but I'd like to, I'd like to understand what... Um, why? Yeah. The yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what it is you might think you might not discover because yeah. you can't. You can't know what you will discover, but why you need it. Yeah, well, because you, you need it nearly <laughs> as, if, as if you were an addict. Um, you're a middle-march addict. Yeah, I'm a middle-marchaholic. Um, I, you know, I, I, I said in an interview recently, somebody... And I said kind of archly that you needed, you didn't need to read Middlemarch to read my book, but you do need to read Middlemarch to be a fully evolved human being. And I was um, sort of exaggerating, but sort of not. Rather, um, rather the latter than the former, I think. <laughs> I you, think... You, I mean, you, you no, truly I, believe I, this. No, I really... I, well, I think that there are these great works... Uh, cultural productions that, you know, the St. Matthew's Passion, the, the Dying Gaul, which is from the Capital Eye Museum, is currently in the, the, National, Muse the, the National Gallery in, in Washington. I was there recently and stood for however long, you know, just marveling at this thing. And you want to see these things, hear these things, read these things again and again. You don't just see them once or tick them off my list. You know, I've seen Middlemarch, I've read, I've, you know, I've listened to that piece of music. When you go back to something that is rich and uh, full of meaning, it will have new meanings for you. And so, of course, I was exaggerating about the evolution and I wasn't using it in a strictly Darwinian sense. But I do think, not that reading Middlemarch is going to make you a better person or a complete person by any means. But an evolved one. Not a fully evolved one. No. But it might, but, but it will, it'll make you more of a person. It'll make you more of a person. You will have had a profound experience with something that will inform your humanity. It's, it won't make you good. You know, plenty of bad people have read Middlemarch <laughs> and have remained bad. It will not make you good, but it will make you more of a person. More intense. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'll it it will enrich you. Yeah, I do believe that. There. Um some people don't agree with me. You know, there are, there are, and, and some people don't like Middlemarch, and they are entitled to that too. So, uh, you know, the, I, I, I'm not prescribing it and saying that everybody will love it and everybody must read it. But I think but on I average, think historically, since it's been published, we can, we can, you know, the consensus is it's pretty good. And, uh, and I'm, I'm here to say that again and more. You know, your point is about Middlemarch, but in a sense it is more, in, in my view, it is more about the act of immersion. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it could be, you know, it could be Proust. Or, or you know, David Copperfield is a, a, another friend's most beloved book, and it tells you something. You know, you say it, it could be Proust, and um, in... Um, a part of La Recherche, which you haven't gotten yet to, because it's the last volume, Proust says in Time Regained, something I'd like you to reflect on. He says, every reader, as he reads, is actually the reader of himself. The writer's work is only a kind of optical instrument he provides the reader so he can discern what he might never have seen in himself without the book. The reader's recognition in himself of what the book says is a proof of the book's truths. It's amazing. Isn't it? It's amazing, yeah. And when I get there, <laughs> I will love it even more than I do now. But, but, yes, but, but let's yeah. not make light of it too much. The optical, no, I'm not making light no, no, of it. But the yeah. optical instrument. Yeah. And that is, I, I, I think, the way in which, if one wants, would want to say that you are manipulating Middlemarch, you are in that way. It serves as an instrument for inquiry. It serves as an instrument for truth. Yes, yes. I mean, I write about my Middlemarch, and it's not the same as your Middlemarch or anybody else's Middlemarch, and it's not even the same as my Middlemarch of 25 years ago. It changes as I, as I change. Um, but yes, uh, so, so, you know, we, we, these, the, these books that matter that are more than just, you know, I read it, I enjoyed it, now what's the next thing? Uh, give us a way to understand ourselves, to understand our marriages, to understand our relations to our children, to understand our relations to our parents, to understand the homes we come from, the homes we make, to understand everything that is in this domestic home epic. And um, there's a, a passage in, in, um, in your book I, I very much like about Eliot as an interviewer. Mm. 
She says in a pre-therapy, you say in a pre-therapeutic age, she instinctively initiated the kind of conversation that went below the surface of things. She wanted to know how people worked, not to expose them or embarrass them, but to move them towards a greater self-understanding and to achieve with them a greater intimacy, however fleeting. I have never been, I have never seen anybody whose search for the meaning and worth of persons and things was so unresting as hers, White wrote. She would have made a great interviewer, you say. And if I could spend an hour in her company, I think that instead of hearing her answer questions about her own life, I would have almost rather listened to her posing questions to a stranger about his or hers. And I think this is, I mean, it's so interesting for me for obvious reasons. But quite apart from the fact that I do ask a fair amount of questions, so do you. I do. (laughs) Uh, That's what you do for a living. And yet were I given the opportunity to ask George Eliot questions. Uh, I have questions I would ask her, but I, I love this. I would love to see, I, you know, you talking with her or her talking with you and be standing behind the arras um, watching, yes. Uh, you know, because? Well, I mean, it's, you know, I do ask questions for a living. But I also observe for a living, and, and, and a big part of what I do is, is listening uh, as opposed to asking and watching. Um, and so there's something in, in wanting to remove myself from the scene and be an observer on the scene. But I, but I, I, uh, I would love to see how she was in conversation, um, because I think she was a, a great, great listener. Yeah. You know, my mother always said to me, well, she didn't always say to me, she said to me when I was 11 years old, she said, you know, we have two ears and one mouth. And I'm sure she said that to me because I wasn't listening. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I keep saying that's uh, the, kind of the origin of, of my inspiration. I used that once when I was asked myself for, I was asked to give myself seven words. So I said, mother always says two ears, <laughs> one mouth. Um, I have a feeling George Eliot would be one of those people that you have a conversation with who uh, you, you don't realize until the end of the conversation that you have, you have been giving all the answers and they have given nothing away about themselves. I, I have a feeling that she's one of those people that, that draws, that, 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 that makes her interlocutor comfortable enough to expose themselves um, and, to, to, and to share with, with her things that they hadn't necessarily even formalized before. But in, in, in some way, that's what your professional life is so much about. Yes, yes. Right? It's not giving away Rebecca Mead. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, and... And, and here in... Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm quite surprised, Rebecca, how, how much of yourself 
is in your life in Middlemarch. <laughs> well, yeah, a there's a lot. I mean, yeah, for an yeah. English person. For an English person. <laughs> yeah. But it, true, no? I mean, uh, no, really? I mean, Are you surprised? I'm surprised, yes. I, I mean, so what, what I, gave you the license to do this? Um, well, I began this book with a piece I wrote for The New Yorker, and when I wrote that piece, I wrote my first draft of it, and, and the first draft of it began with me describing George Eliot's childhood home. And I took it to my editor, and he had many things to say about it, but one of the things he said was, you know, you need to make this about you. Uh, m you need to put yourself in this more. Um, you only get one chance to do this, and you have to do it properly. And so I went away and rewrote it, and then the beginning of the piece was about me and my childhood home, and where I'd come from and how I'd grown up. And, and he gave me license to do that, and, and, and so, I did it thinking, well, maybe nobody will like it, maybe nobody will be interested, maybe it won't resonate for anybody. Um, that piece did resonate with a lot of people uh, who spoke to me and said that it had, had spoken to them. And then, so, so then I thought, well, I can do this. I can, you know, to use a horribly contemporary phrase, give myself permission to, to put myself in my book and in my work in a way that I hadn't done before. Um, and write a memoir of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't quite think uh, that I was writing a memoir, or I thought I was writing one of sorts, yeah. And, and it is one of sorts, but it is, it is extremely personal. It is not wildly confessional. Um, no, I would but agree, it is, yeah. But it is extremely extremely personal and, and I, but it can only exist because in a way you use the the shield of middlemarch to reveal yourself yes yes well i wouldn't have dared I mean or conceived of writing about myself without having middlemarch a is a, <laughs> middlemarch yeah. it's a refraction it's yes. what the catalyst it's a prism it's an optical um, it is my optimism. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and when I began it, I didn't know how much of that, you know, how much of me would be in it. And I mean, it was a process of discovery as I was writing it. And, uh, you know, and, and I, 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 you know, laughed when I was writing it. I cried while I was writing it. I mean, I, you know, it was an intense experience. It was not like writing a magazine article. It was a very different how are you, well, you, you finished the book quite recently. You took a year or maybe less than a year yeah, off less from than a year. the... Six months. I, I took six months off to write it and did it in a stretch, uh, um, somewhat broken uh, by my father's death halfway through writing it, uh, but then uh, continued. How will you, I mean, you have, but how do you go back to to writing what you write at the New Yorker, the kinds of um, profiles you, you do. Does the, do, do you feel that the writing of this book has changed in any way the, 
the way in which you will approach your subjects. Um, do you yeah. think, in other words, that George Eliot will have changed Rebecca Mead in some way to approach her world differently when she is actually listening to her subjects talk? I, I do. Uh, I do. But I also think that I wrote this book in part because that change was already Happened. underway. And I had gone from, you know, as a much younger person writing pieces in which I sought to expose the silliness of uh, the people I was writing about some of the time. Not always, but, you know, there was a certain amount of that. Um, and wanting to show, you know, how clever I was and, um, and, and, uh, and having, you know, writing things that that were that achieved their go that achieved their effect at somebody's expense um i think a lot of young journalists do this it's certainly a good way to get noticed if you are a young journalist um and george eliot herself when she was in her early 30s before she started writing um before she started writing fiction she she wrote criticism and she wrote very scathing uh critical pieces and it was kind of wonderful to go back and read these and, and, and recognize this woman in her early 30s who was so brilliant and spiky and angry and pained and, and expressing herself in those ways through her work and then discovering this largeness and empathy that she reveals in the fiction. For my own evolution, it's not an evolution into fiction, but, but I, I became, after 20 years of well, not 20 years, of, do, of, of doing what I do, much less interested in that kind of, you know, uh, you know but much less interested in being snarky than I was in trying to understand why somebody was the way that they are. And which isn't to say that I, I think I've become s softer as a writer or an interviewer or anything like that, but I, I think I... I'm much more interested in, uh, in trying to understand why the person I'm writing about feels the way that they do and trying to hear what they're saying and, and trying to perhaps, in the best case, show them something in the writing of the piece that they had not seen or recognized about themselves before. Um, so that, that, that was already happening. And I think that that, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I, I mean, that, that, that's also part of growing up and growing older. I would hope that, you know, all of us are less spiky uh, at 47 than we were at 23. Well, at 17, when, when you wanted to, to jump over, and you did, and climb the hill, and what is so exhilarating about, about the book is that in some way you escaped, um, you left, you left behind, you left behind your parents um, as quickly as you possibly could and left behind people who had never themselves been uh, to university. And so in some way 
It's an aspirational story of the highest order. You not only went to school, you went to one of the finest schools, and then you came to New York to discover a whole new world, made, um, made uh, decisions here. Some you have embraced fully, some you speak about even in the book with regret. And then the movement of the book takes you from having left to having arrived to then going back. And to going back also, and I think perhaps this is the, the, most, um, the most powerful, at least to me, uh, striking uh, movement of the book is to, um, one might say, a better understanding of the people who need the most understanding, namely your parents. And going back to um, really loving them in a new way and an empathy for them, mm -hmm. um, which I think may be in part begotten if one wants to put so much pressure on, on a work of art or literature by Middlemarch itself. Middlemarch got you out of that provincial world and brought you in a way closer to what you say yourself, you still call home. And before I'm going to ask you to read something, I want to read a passage of your book that is of particular interest to me. Um, now I can see that I could not see as a teenager the romance and the epic dimensions of a long-lasting marriage. Then a bit later you say, from where I stand in the middle of my own home epic, my own mundane grand domestic adventure, in which I attempt to live in sympathy with the family I have made, I now look upon the accomplishment of early dawning, long-lasting love with something like awe. When I turn the last pages of Middlemarch and read about Fred and Mary, for whom you had very little regard as a young girl, that's not in the book, I just add that, I think of my parents who met when they were barely past childhood and who grew white-haired together until in the hours before dawn, one winter morning nearly 60 years after their wedding day, my father died with my mother at his side, holding his hand and speaking softly to him of sweet memories in common. Middle March gives me my parents back to me. In the pages of my imagination, they are still together watching me and watching over me from the window of their lives under the pale sunlit of the place I came from and still call home. I mean, it's... Middle March gives me my parents back to me. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, as I say, I, I began this book the, the, the reporting for this book, the going back to England and, and you know, revisiting my home and revisiting sites of George Eliot's childhood. Um, that, that process was a couple of years and it was a couple of years during which I knew my father was dying, my father was declining. And every time I went back, I thought this might be the last time that I would see him. And 
writing my book gave me, although this wasn't at all in my mind when I undertook the project, because, you know, our unconscious motivations remain unconscious until, duh, we realize what's going on later. Um, but I, it gave me the opportunity to go, to go back and be with them. Uh, and writing the book gave me the opportunity to go back in imagination and, and think about what their marriage had been, uh, for which I had spent so little time thinking about when I was young, except I don't want to do anything like that. You know, I want to leave, I want to go, I am not going to marry anybody I've known since I was 15. God help me. And I, and I regarded that kind, of, that kind of relationship, that kind of marriage, as, as completely uninteresting and, and unromantic, um, and now, you know, in reading the story of Fred and Mary, who are betrothed as children and marry, and then we discover at the end of Middlemarch, spend their whole lives together, I recognized these are, these are my parents and what a grand accomplishment that is. Partly through the longevity of their yeah, relationship. The, the longevity, um, the solidity. I mean, they gave me the space in which to have an entirely different life. I mean, the, the, the generosity, the parental generosity of saying to your child, it's okay, you can leave the country, you can leave forever. Go. Yeah, I mean, that's astonishing. As a parent, I find that, you know, I got my American passport so that my son can never live on a continent that I'm not allowed to live on. You know, I... I, I, I I can't, the generosity of that, and it was done with barely a, a, a glimmer. There was a moment, I, in my mid-twenties, I moved back to England for a year, uh, and then decided I was coming back to New York, and I went to tell my parents that I was going to return to New York, and I thought that they wouldn't be, you know, I didn't really even think about what it would mean to them. And I remember telling them, my father, who was a very undemonstrative, undemonstrative man, but a very feeling man, his eyes filled with tears as I told him that I was leaving, and I had no idea. You know, and I still left. And what is amazing is that, in a way, you've discovered the motivation of, for the book, in part, now. Yes, was a kind of recovery and uh, a, a sort of a veneration of my parents and a, an act of filial piety that I scorned in the characters who expressed that as young people. I, hadn't, I had no interest in being dutiful. Um, and, and, and yet, I, 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 this book is written in a spirit of, of love and admiration and, and immense gratitude to my parents. And as I, I you know, uh, my, father, my father died, um, you know, two months before I wrote that passage about his death. And I had been sending, I knew that my father probably wouldn't live long enough to, uh, for me to even finish the book, let alone publish it. And I, as I wrote chapters, I sent them off to my parents so that they could see and he could see uh, at least something of, of what I was doing. He and, he, and he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the longevity is particularly speak, uh, speaks particularly strongly to me. My parents were, my mother died recently, and 
they were married for over 70 years. Oh. What it's, would that be? I mean, what would that be to have your whole love life in one place with one person forever? You know, that's what, you know, that, that was what I realized when I, you know, I, I didn't get married until I was in my late thirties and I had lots of love affairs before then. And I, the one thing I'll never have is that. The, the one thing that I'll never experience is that long-lived love in one place, that home epic shared with one person for a whole lifetime. I find it awe-inspiring and uh, beyond romantic. Uh, I, I find it, you know, beautiful and, and, and awesome. Rebecca, I've asked you to, to read something in closing. Um, yes. I would like... I would like you to do so, and um, it's the last, it's, it's most of the last chapter of your book, which you, both the first chapter and the last chapter share their name with Middlemarch. They do. So yes, this one is a, the, the finale. finale. Yes. And you, you might want to read the, the epigraph. I will. I'm just going to say that this is, uh, this begins uh, in a discussion of the very famous last line of Middlemarch, and uh, the part I'm not going to read is about going to the British Library and discovering that the first draft of George Eliot, the first draft of the manuscript, um, the, this very famous last line, which I'll discuss here, was different, and she revised it for publication, and I talk about the revisions that she made that I think are quite interesting, but I'm going to skip that part and just read you this part. Um, the epigraph is... Every limit is a beginning as well as an ending. The final sentence of Middlemarch is one of the most admired in literature, and with good reason. It's quietly thrilling, as Stanley Fish, the literary critic, has written. The book ends as it began with Dorothea, and it, dis and it discovers what may be redeemed from disappointment. Dorothea's fate is not to be another St. Teresa, but to be a heroine of the ordinary, the embodiment of George Eliot's grave, demanding, meliorist faith. It reads, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. A vein of melancholy runs through the sentence. Dorothea's impact upon the people around her is diffusive, like vapor vanishing into the air. Things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, but ill they still are to some degree and are not likely to be otherwise. Acts are unhistoric, lives are hidden, tombs are unvisited, all is unmarked and unnoticed. With its series of long clauses and then its short final phrase, the sentence concludes with a perfect dying fall. I cannot imagine reading these words and not sighing at the end of them. By the end of the book, Dorothea has made her own progress, even if she has not had a chance to stray far beyond the boundaries of her provincial life. Having aspired at the novel's outset to do good for others in some grand but abstract way, she discovers that the good she is able to do is in relation to the lives that touch her own more closely, even if doing so may be inconvenient or painful for her. 
And there's a passage in chapter 80, only a few short pages before the end of this very long book, in which this is crystallized for Dorothea. It's here that she makes her own discovery of what Middlemarch is about. It's early in the morning, and she's in her boudoir at Lowick Manor. By now she's a widow, Casabon having died. Although she is convinced that she and Ladislaw must always be separated because of the codicil in Casabon's will, she has, until now, clung to the knowledge that he loves her and treasured him for the brightness he brought to the gloomy days of her marriage. But her confidence in him has been shaken. She, the, day, the day before, in an effort to help save Lydgate's reputation, she has visited the doctor's house and there stumbled across Rosamond and Ladislaw in what she has mistakenly taken for a love scene. Shocked and disillusioned, she has spent an anguished night on the hard floor of her room, regretting the loss of her cherished ideal of Ladislaw's worthiness and admitting to herself that she had loved him. By morning, though, she has forced herself to think beyond herself and to consider how she still might act on behalf of Lydgate and even Rosamond, whose troubles she might yet help to remedy, even though she feels her own hopes are shattered." She opened her curtains and looked out towards the bit of road that lay in view with fields beyond, outside the entrance gates, Elliot writes. On the road, there was a man with a bundle on his back and a woman carrying her baby. In the field, she could see figures moving, perhaps the shepherd with his dog. Far off in the bending sky was the pearly light, and she felt the largeness of the world and the manifold wakings of men to labor and endurance. She was a part of that involuntary, palpitating life and could neither look out on it from her luxurious shelter as a mere spectator, nor hide her eyes in selfish complaining. There's a biblical gravitas to the image of husband and wife as they walk through the landscape on the road to Middlemarch, representing the hidden lives of all those people Dorothea now realizes her own life is bound up with and who must also be recognized. In looking out upon them, small figures in an enlarging vista, Dorothea comprehends the next step she must take on her own journey. We are called to express our generosity and sympathy in ways we might not have chosen for ourselves. Heeding that call, we might become better. Setting aside our own cares, we might find ourselves on the path that can lead us out of resignation. Rebecca Mead, thank you very much. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.